Let's now turn to God's holy word. We'll read from a different number of different passages. We'll start with the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, the verses 1 through 6. And then we turn to the book of Revelation. We'll read from a couple of chapters there. And then we turn to our text, which is from Genesis chapter 49. So Matthew chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. We'll read God's word as follows. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came into Jerusalem. They're saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And then we'll turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, and then chapter 22. Revelation 5, first five verses. The Apostle John sees a vision from heaven. He actually, this is a scene where the Lord Jesus ascends into heaven and he comes into the presence of his Father. Revelation 5, beginning verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's the Father, or God the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to lose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And then we'll turn to Revelation chapter 22. We'll go to the very end. Start by reading the first five verses and then the verses 12 through 17. There, John sees in a vision the new paradise. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 uh, fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And then we'll skip down to verse 12. 12 through, or 12 through 17. 
And behold, I am coming quickly. I'm referring to this Lord Jesus speaking. And my reward is with me, and to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And then we'll go to our text. We'll go to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, Jacob is on his death, but at least he's, he's near, near to the point where he's going to die, and he gives his blessings to his children. And this morning, we're going to look at the blessing that he gives to his son Judah, beginning in verse 8, 8 through 12. So Genesis 49, verse 8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people." Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So far, our text and our reading from God's holy word this morning. Brothers, sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've come to that time of the year when we come to what's often referred to as the season of Advent. When we speak about Advent, Advent simply means we're talking about the arrival or the coming of an important person or an important event. And so at this time of the year, our, our minds are turned to the coming of the Lord Jesus when he came from heaven down to this earth on Christmas Day. And of course, we don't have any record uh, anymore as to the exact time of the year or when the Lord Jesus was actually born. The Christians already adopted for many centuries to December the 25th as the day in which the church celebrates his birth when he was born in Bethlehem. This morning, we're going to be dealing with the blessing that and Judah receives from his father in Jacob. And in this blessing, Jacob was already speaking about the coming 
of the great one, the coming of the great king who's going to be the savior of his people. And so you'll find throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament is, uh, speaks of the event, speaks about the coming of the one God is, is sending to this world in order to save us and in order to redeem us from our sins and to give us the glorious hope of the life everlasting. And so this morning we're dealing with this blessing to, to Judah. And you'll find throughout the Old Testament, you find it throughout the entire Scriptures, also in the New Testament, that the blessing is a very important feature and especially functions as important, has an important function in the Old Testament. Right when you read through the Old Testament so often, you read that God gives His blessing to His people. God gave His blessing to, uh, to Adam and, and Eve in the beginning. He gave His blessing to Noah. He gives His blessing to, to, to Abraham. And when he gives his blessing to Abraham, not only does he say to Abraham that he's going to give a blessing to him, but he also then speaks about the future. He's going to give blessings to his children who come after him. Now, not only does, do you read that God gives blessings, but you also read often that fathers will give blessings to their children when they're about to die. And that's what you read here in our text with Jacob. Jacob gives his son, Judah, a, a blessing. And a blessing, you'll notice, always contains promises. Always contains promises about the future. Blessings are always looking forward to what's going to happen. And so God in His blessing says, this is what I am the Lord your God, and this is what I will do for you, and this is what I will do for your children after you in the future. And so when a father gives a blessing to his children, what is he telling his children? He's saying to his children, this is what the Lord is going to do for you and for your children in the future. And so you can understand that blessings are important to God's people. Because these blessings give us the assurance about our future well-being. That's why when God came to Abraham and he blessed Abraham, he said to Abraham, not only will I be the Lord your God, I will take care of your life today, but he says, I will make you into a great nation. Abraham, I'm going to make your name great in this world. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you, Abraham. Well, that's a, a wonderful blessing, and we know that that blessing to Abraham was finally fulfilled with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, in this blessing that Jacob gives to Judah, Judah receives a promise that, Judah, from your family, God is going to raise up the royal family. And one of your children is going to sit on your throne, on his throne, and he will receive power and authority, not only for a few short years here on this earth, but for eternity, forever. And of course, we know today how that promise was fulfilled with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we'll listen then to God's word under this theme. The great king will arise from Judah. The great king will arise from Judah. And we'll first of all look at he is, coming as, he is coming as a great warrior. And secondly, that when he comes, he will also restore paradise. Now normally when a father gives blessings to his sons, he will give the firstborn son the most important blessing. But when you look at the blessing here in this chapter you'll notice that the most important blessing is given to, to Judah. And Judah, he's not the firstborn, Judah is the fourthborn. Jacob says to, to Judah, he says, your brothers will praise you. Judah, or Jacob already made clear 
or before this blessing uh, to the three oldest sons that he doesn't give them the, the main blessing or the most important blessing because of the evil things that they have done in the past. And because, that, because of the things that they have done, he will not, they will not receive the blessing of the firstborn. On the other hand, Judah, is Judah more worthy than his older brothers? Well, you know, Judah himself, we know, was not without sin and without wickedness. If you go back into a Genesis, you'll read some sordid details about his, his life. Remember, he committed incest with his own daughter-in-law, Tamar. Of course, he, he, he didn't realize it because Tamar acted as a prostitute and deceived him. But why did she deceive him? Because he had not acted faithfully towards her. And Tamar, acting more faithfully than her, than her father-in-law, she now receives the child child that Judah had promised to her but refused to give it to her. And she receives this child who will be, who then is the firstborn child in the family of Judah and through whom the great one is going to come into the world. And so God in his mercy is, and God in his grace is merciful to Judah and he promises to Judah, Judah, your family will become a great family in Israel. Your family will become the royal family in Israel. And as you reflect on this, beloved, it should remind us that God did not come to give his blessings to his people, the people who deserved it because they had somehow earned it and they were worthy of it. But God, in his mercy, gives his blessing to those he has chosen. Why? Because he knows that they need it. When God is merciful to me, he shows his mercy to me, not because I deserve his mercy, but because I desperately need his grace, and I desperately need his mercy. And that's the theme. That's the theme you're going to find throughout the entire Old Testament. It's a constant, the Old Testament is a constant reminder of how the people of Israel, they depended upon the blessings and the promise of God, a promise in which God said, I am sending the Redeemer and the Savior, and he is coming to redeem you. And so Jacob tells Judah, God has chosen you, Judah, to raise up from you the one who will rule over his people forever. When he comes, he will be the savior of his people. The heart of the blessing is really found in verse 10. There Judah says this. I'll use the NIV translation since it's a, it's a clearer translation. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come. Well, when Jacob talks about the scepter or the staff, the scepter or staff, you can say, is a rod, or we sometimes refer to it as a mace. And a mace is, is a symbol of authority. Have you ever been in Parliament? And probably need to be in Parliament when, when Parliament is sitting there you'll find on the table there in front of Parliament, uh, in the House of Commons, you'll find a beautifully decorated rod called a mace. And that mace is carried into the House of Commons whenever the members of the government are, are meeting. And that mace is a symbol of authority. This is where the authority in the land of Canada rests. And so the promise to Judah is that a ruler will arise from his family in Israel who will receive authority to rule. Now, you know that when you look at royal families in the history of this world, 
we know that there's, no, there's never been a royal family who has lasted forever. Royal families always tend to lose their power and authority at a certain point in their history. But Jacob says to Judah, he says, Judah, that will never happen in your family. The scepter of authority will never depart from you, Judah. Now, of course, we know later on, Judah is going to become the, the largest tribe in Israel as they leave Egypt. Um, when they look at fighting men, Judah has the most fighting men, the most warriors in all of Israel. And, and the, later on, when Israel demands a king, what does God do? The Lord God chooses David to be the king of Israel because David is from, David's, or from Judah's family. And then God comes to David and he promises David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. So David, who comes from the family of Judah, and God now also remembers that old promise that Jacob had given to Judah by telling David, David, your throne, your dynasty will be an everlasting dynasty. You will have a son and he will sit on your throne forever and ever. And about this man, this is ruler who is going to come, Jacob says to Judah, he says, no, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. See, Judah will become the great warrior in Israel. Judah will be the one who will defeat all the enemies of God's people. He will be a mighty ruler. So mighty, Jacob says, that your brothers will bow down and he will praise you because of your great exploits, because you're able to defeat all their enemies. And you see how that is already partially fulfilled in the life of David, when David becomes king in Israel. Even before David is king, you may remember, he became a commander in Saul's army. And God blessed David in such a wonderful way that David was successful no matter where he went to fight. So that when he came back home from a battle, what did the people sing? Well, the people sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens, tens of thousands. Right? He received greater praise than Saul. No wonder Saul was envious of David. And then finally, David, when he does become king, David begins to rule in a way that he defeats all the, uh, all the enemies who are still in the land. Remember after the exile, or after the, uh, the, the conquest, Israel didn't, uh, did not, uh, were not, was not yet able to wipe out all their enemies, not able to drive them out of the land yet. But when David becomes king, he begins then to, to clear the land of all of their enemies. And then under King Solomon, his son, uh, the kingdom of Israel expands even, even further. And it's a really a glorious people, a glorious time in the history of Israel. And so when you think of this king who is coming, Jacob describes this king, this ruler, as a lion. You are a lion's cub. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches. Who dares to rouse him? You know, lions in the past were very common in Palestine. Probably only around the latter part of the 1800s that, that the lions completely disappeared. Um, something that I've, I've read also about the, about the geography of, of the land. Today you won't find any lions in, in Israel. They're extinct. In the past, it was very, they were very common. 
And a lion would be a mighty beast with their mighty roar. They would frighten their prey. And when they catch their prey, they they bring the prey back to the den and there they would feed the the young ones. And there the lion, he has the image of the lion crouches there in his den. No other animal, no other human being would even dare to try to enter into, into his den. You wouldn't be foolish enough to do that because you know that the lion would destroy you. And so Jacob then gives a picture of the future in which Judah will become a great royal family. In fact, they will become mighty warriors. They will defeat their enemies, and all their enemies will stand in dread of them like people stand in dread of the lion. And so you know that even today, David's royal family among the Jews is identified as the lion of Israel. Interesting that Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10 gives it, there you find a description of Solomon's throne. And we're told that on both sides of the throne there is a, a standing lion. And then there are these six steps that lead up to the throne of Solomon. And then on the ends of both sides of, of each of those six steps, uh, there is another standing lion. So there are 12 lions in, in total. Well, that which really needs to capture our attention is the last part of verse 10 in which Jacob says that the scepter will not depart from Judah until he to whom it belongs comes. I know your translation speaks about it, so Shiloh comes, and Shiloh is likely just a way of literally, it's just a literal translation or alliteration of the Hebrew word there, which at times there are some discussions about exactly how how are we to understand that word Shiloh. Today, it is understood to to be translated this way, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And so while it might be a difficult sentence to translate, the meaning nevertheless is still clear. Someone is coming. Someone is coming who will take the scepter to whom it belongs. And so Jacob says that the scepter of authority, it will be passed on from one generation to the next generation until finally the Lord God will send the one, the one who will receive the scepter of authority. One will arise from Judah who will sit on his throne forever, the one to whom God has determined that it belongs. Well, that also explains why later on the Lord God he says to King David, David, I'm going to give to you a son, and your son will sit on your throne for eternity. He is the one to whom this authority belongs. And so when we now look back from a New Testament perspective, we then see how this blessing has been fulfilled wonderfully in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Luke tells us that Joseph Luke tells us in his gospel about the life of Joseph and Mary that that Joseph went to register himself with Mary in Bethlehem. And the result is that that Jesus was born in the town of his father, David. Matthew tells us then also about the Magi, the the wise men who came from from the east and they came to the city of Jerusalem shortly after the birth of the Lord Jesus. And they inquire of, of the Jews and they said to the people in Jerusalem, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then the Jews, they remembered the prophet Micah had foretold that he would be born in Bethlehem 
one who is by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Among the rulers of Judah. So, what Matthew or what Luke is showing us is that the blessing that was given to Judah by his father Jacob is fulfilled here in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes as the great king of the Jews. He comes as the mighty warrior of God. But we also know that the war in which the Lord Jesus engages is not an earthly battle, not a battle for territory, earthly territory, but it is a spiritual battle. Christ comes that he might battle against the spiritual powers of darkness in this world. That's why at the very beginning of his ministry, while we're told that, that the devil is the one who comes to the Lord Jesus, and he tempts the Lord Jesus three times, clearly indicates to us that Jesus is not fighting against flesh and blood. He's not fighting to establish an earthly kingdom where he can rule over people with the sword. But he's fighting against the dark spiritual powers that seek to destroy all of mankind for eternity. That, beloved, is the spiritual battle that Christ fought to the very end of his life. At the end of his life, you see how he's then finally he's rejected by his own people, and then he is crucified, nailed on the cross. And it's there on the cross that the Lord Jesus fought the great spiritual battle for us as his people. Because there on the cross, he was rejected not only by his own people, not only was he rejected by us human beings, but he was rejected there also by his Father in heaven because he carried our sins upon himself. That's why he was willing to endure the agony of hell, that he might deliver us from that horrible judgment that was upon us. Satan and all the powers of darkness rejoiced at his death. They thought, now we have won the victory. He has died on the cross. And our great enemy, Jesus, is dead. But oh, they didn't understand. By his death, Christ had won the great victory over death because he had overcome sin and he had the power to rise up in the great resurrection. And then, and then we jump forward into the book of Revelation. And there John sees in a wonderful vision in Revelation 5.5, 5, there he sees the Lord Jesus after he has entered into heaven following his victory on the cross and his ascension into heaven. And there, first of all, he sees God on the throne and God is holding in his hand a scroll with seven seals that no one was able to open. And that scroll, beloved, represents the future history of the world in which we are today. And then John is told, as he's weeping because nobody's found to open that scroll, nobody's found to, to lead the history of the world. And then John says, see, then John is, is told, see, the line of the tribe of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, there's so much here that we could unpack, but, but notice this. Notice that the Lord Jesus, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, he is called the line of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ is the great son of Judah to whom the scepter of authority belongs forever. He is the great warrior who has won the great spiritual battle that ended there on the cross. Beloved, the Lord Jesus has earned that authority so that he alone is able to open the scroll. 
That means that the Lord Jesus alone has the authority to rule over everything in the universe, over the world in which we live. And so, you know, you have to think back when Judah, when Judah received this blessing from his father Jacob, you can't imagine what he must have been thinking because I don't think he would have had a clue as to really how great that blessing really was going to be. Judah would not yet have comprehended the greatness of that future son, the greatness of that future blessing. David, David later on knew that the son God promised to him was going to be greater than he, but, but David too, I'm sure, would not yet have understood the greatness of the one that was going to come. But today, beloved, today we know the Lord Jesus in a much greater way than, than Judah did, than, than the forefather David did. We know the Lord Jesus in all of his greatness, don't we? It is in faith that we look up to Jesus, the Lion of Judah, as the one who has won the great victory, the one who has given to us the glorious hope of eternal life in the future. Jacob hints at the greatness of Judah's son at the end of verse 10 when he says, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. In other words, the one who comes will comes into his authority, he will receive the obedience of the peoples of all the nations. Well, consider what the Jews thought when, uh, before the Lord Jesus came to this world. The Jews thought that when this child of Judah, when this promise of, uh, to Judah is fulfilled, their idea was, you know, when he comes and he's going to set his throne, uh, he's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, he begin to rule the nations of the earth. He'll destroy the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire and, and he will begin to conquer the nations around them. Oh, they thought they had this great big dream of mighty things for Israel and the glory of Israel. But beloved, when you really think about it, their dream about earthly glory was a dream that was just far, far too small. How small Israel dreamed. Because Christ came to do something much greater and to something much, much more glorious than that. You see, Christ says to his disciples when he gave them the great commission in Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Right? There you see Christ's vision. His vision for the future is much greater than the vision that the Jews had of their future. Christ says to his disciples, he says, My rule will go out into all the earth, and it will go out over all the nations of the earth. And Christ makes it very clear, he's not going to conquer uh, this, this world through the sword. He's not going to use the weapons of war that he might cause people to submit to his authority. No, Christ is going to go out with the sword of his word. He's going to go out with the sword of the gospel. Christ's battle, beloved, is, is, is not to, to submit people physically under his rule. Christ's battle is for the hearts. It's for the minds of mankind from all the nations of the earth. And it will be through the power of his word and his spirit that he's able uh, to, uh, to slice right down, down to the very heart of mankind that he can rule the hearts of his people. He can rule our hearts. That means, beloved, that the power of Christ is found where? It is found among you. It's found right here in this place this morning. 
Christ is the great King who rules your heart and who now also rules your life. Christ is the one who comes and assures you of the great victory over sin and death. In Christ, you now receive also that glorious promise of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. That's a miracle. It's a miracle that the Lord changes your heart, that He renews your heart, that He causes your heart to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, that you submit to Him and you love Him with your whole being. That's something we do. Something that the Spirit works in the hearts of each one of us. And the Lord then also promises as He renews us and as He brings us under His glorious rule. And we also still have this promise that He is coming to, that He might restore to us the new paradise. In the verses 11 and 12, Jacob describes how rich and prosperous the kingdom will be. Now you can have a king who's going to rule forever. He might be a mighty king. He might be a great king. But, but imagine if that king is a cruel dictator. Imagine if that king is the one who rules this country in a way that the rich get richer and the poor they get poorer and they suffer more greatly. Who wants such an eternal king? Such a king will only cause eternal misery for his people. But the kingdom of the son of Judah will be a great kingdom that is prosperous and which everyone will share in that prosperity. Right Today we have a time which our culture is talking about being able to uh, spread out the wealth so that everybody receives the same wealth. And we know that is impossible because when we try to do that, everybody only gets poor. But here we're reflecting a time uh, when the prosperity was so great uh, that everyone will equally share in that prosperity and instead of becoming poor, we'll only become richer in the Lord our God. And he says about this ruler of Judah in verse 11, he says, he will tether his donkey to a vine, or tie his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. And as to his appearance, his eyes will be darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. When the king comes, Jacob says, he will tether, he will tie his donkey to a vine, a grapevine. Now before we go any further into this imagery, we first will need to see some connections here to the rest of Scripture. Talk about donkey. Well, you know, a donkey is not the kind of animal that people associate with a great king. You see a great king coming, you don't expect him to come riding on a donkey. If you think about the Egyptian kings, we have these, these pictures, these reliefs uh, from archaeology that shows that, that when Pharaoh came, uh, the king of Egypt came to visit his people, he was riding in a chariot that was pulled by a massive stallion that revealed his glory. But God, God had forbidden the people of Israel to use horses, and also the kings of Israel forbidden to use horses, and they were especially not to use horses uh, uh, as a means to go into battle. And the reason is that God is saying to his people, Israel, you're not to put your trust in your horses. Don't put your trust in your steed, but put your trust in the Lord God, for I am your great warrior. I am the one who will fight the battles for you. And so the donkey is not a, is not a symbol of some great mighty earthly warrior. In fact, the donkey 
is the animal that becomes associated with the royal family of David. The donkey conveys a spirit of humility, a spirit of humble trust in God. The prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9 commands the people of Israel to shout. Shout, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See here, Zechariah says the king of Israel, how does he come? He comes to his people riding on a horse, but riding a donkey that is described as lowly. The kings of Israel were to have an attitude of humility. An attitude in which they cared more about their own people than they did about themselves and they did about their own glory. And so you may remember, as a children, you may remember the story of the Lord Jesus. A week before he, he died, he told his disciples to go get the donkey from a neighboring village. And what does the Lord Jesus do? He gets on the donkey and he rides the donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And the people shout with words of praise, Hosanna in the highest. Here's the king, the king of the Jews. And then Matthew writes, in reflection of what happens there, Matthew 21 verse 5, that this happened to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah. See, your king comes to you lowly and riding on a donkey. So Christ comes and he rides into Jerusalem as the great king of Judah. How does he come riding? He comes riding on his lowly, lowly donkey. Mankind would kind of laugh and ridicule the Lord Jesus because of that. But the Lord Jesus, no, he comes in a spirit of humility. Jesus comes not to be served, but he comes that he might serve us by giving his life on the cross. And then we come back again to the imagery here. Jacob says that he will tether his donkey to a vine and his colt to the choicest branch. This expression shows us how prosperous the kingdom will be. The vines are so plentiful uh, that he doesn't even need to worry about whether his donkey will destroy them or not. He can just use it as a hitching post for his donkey. And the donkey might eat it, but that's okay. Yet the vines will be so plentiful. And the harvest of grapes, well, the harvest of grapes will be so great that the grape juice will be as plentiful as water in the land. And so he will wash his garments in, in, the, in, the, in the juice of the grapes rather than in the water, which might, because, it's, because there's so much grape juice around. And his appearance, his appearance will be stunning, his eyes darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. The description of how great and how handsome and how wonderful this king will appear when he comes to his people. And so here in this last part of the blessing, what Jacob is doing, he's describing how rich and blessed the kingdom of Judah is going to be. And you already have an indication of how rich and blessed the kingdom of Judah will be quite quickly in their, in their history when God appoints David as the first king ruling on the throne of Judah and then his son Solomon follows him. Right, David comes, and what does David do? David is a great warrior who brings peace to the whole land, and people are able to have rest again from their enemies. And then Solomon follows him, and Solomon expands the kingdom, and Solomon becomes so rich that the gold and the silver in the land, they lost their value because there was so much of it there. 
and as blessed and as glorious as the reign of David and Solomon was, and the Lord Jesus nevertheless says in Matthew 12, he says about himself, he says, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus says, he says, the beauty and the splendor of Solomon's reign cannot compare to the beauty and the splendor uh, of him who is our Lord Jesus Christ. And why is his splendor so much greater? Because Jesus, beloved, has received all authority in heaven and on earth. Right? That great king born in Bethlehem is now the one who sits enthroned over the whole earth. Beloved, we look up to the Lord Jesus as the one who now reigns over all things, also over our life today. The one who has power and authority to open the scroll with the seven seals is the one who is in control of our life and our future today. For the sake, for our sake, the Lord in heaven, beloved, is now leading all things to that great day when he will again return from heaven. He come and he will establish the kingdom of heaven in all of his glory over the whole earth. On that day, paradise will be restored in even greater splendor. Christ himself will come and he will appear in great power and he will restore to us all the riches of paradise. Revelation 22, we read, John sees there in the new paradise, there is the, water, uh, of the, or there is the river, the water of life, flowing from the throne of God. On each side of the river, uh, there are the trees of life, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And so there in the kingdom of God, there in paradise restored, the abundance of riches will be so great that we will never, ever lack anything. And therefore, beloved, the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ also today comes when he says, come, come, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Beloved, that is what the Lord offers us in the blessings that he gives to you as his people. The blessing to Judah has been fulfilled in the most wonderful way in Jesus Christ. The great king has come from Judah. He has won the great victory. And know full well, beloved, he also restore you again to that glorious life there in the kingdom of our God. And so to our blessed Lord be all the praise. Amen.